from 10 to 1. Mid Mornings with Phil Rowe. interview this morning. We have uh, in the studio with us now Susan Miller. She is the Events Administration Assistant uh, for the University of Cambridge uh, Museums Department. She is going to be a very busy lady. We managed to catch her this week because I know next Wednesday it would have probably been nine on impossible because uh, she has an awful lot on her plate. It's the fact that we have uh, an event going on in Cambridge called Twilight at the Museums. It's a free event. It's uh, going to be hosted from next Wednesday for next Wednesday evening as Darkness Falls the museums right across Cambridge. Many of them are university museums. are going to be opening their doors uh, to uh, show their uh, wear in terms of their collections uh, right across Cambridge. Um, it's a free exploration evening, pretty wondrous, I think, for younger children. Susan, thanks very much for coming in today and spending some time with us before you... Uh, I think you're off into London this afternoon anyway, aren't oh, you? Oh, yes, it's all go at the moment. <laughs> it's all go for you. <laughs> so, actually, it's the first time I've heard of the event, but it's probably to my ignorance. How many years has this been running? This will be the eighth time we've uh, hosted Twilight at the Museums, and um, each year it's grown in popularity, um, and it's grown in terms of the participation of collections that are involved as well. Have you run it in successive years? We have indeed, such as its popularity, yeah. Yes. And it's not just, uh, the, as I mentioned there, not just university-owned um, museums. Uh, you Moving it slightly further food, working in collaboration with, for instance, up at um, Denny Farm Museum, which is sort of between right. Water Beach and Chittering on the A10, just on the right-hand side as you leave Cambridge. That's right. That's our sort of furthest venue that we have. Yes. Um, all the other venues are based in Cambridge themselves. But we have um, the... Museum of Cambridge, which is involved, um, Cambridge Museum of Technology um, and the Cambridge Science Centre, in addition to seven university museums and the Botanic Gardens. The one I can't, um, in my short geographical map in my head, is the Museum of Cambridge. Where is that one? It was formerly known as the Cambridge and County Folk Museum. Oh, of course, yes. Yes, and the it's had been through a bit of a name Castle change, Hill. right That's beside right. Kettle's Yard on Castle. That's Street. what threw me. I yes. should know that. We have had uh, <laughs> one of the um, curator team in before. So uh, I guess a lot of uh, the people that will be manning these events will be staff that are giving up their evening to do this. Staff and we've got a great big band of volunteers, um, which is fantastic. So we have over 30 people who are giving up their time for free to help us out, uh, to meet and greet families, hand out guides, provide information, help with trails. So we've been so successful in um, in recruiting um, extra help. So big thank you to our volunteers. <laughs> Friends of the museum, do, do most of the museums have a supporting body that... Uh like, uh, some yes, some museums have a, museums? A, a pool of um, friends and volunteers that they can draw on, but these are additional to that. So we put out a big plea saying, if you'd like to be involved, uh, let us know. And we had a great response. So there's uh, lots of enthusiasm out there. I've been to event. a few of the university uh, museums, uh, notably things like the Whipple Museum particularly I enjoy because of the, the technology such as old uh, chronographs they show there or even old pocket calculators from down the years the old early Sinclair ones from the 1970s and th those sort of things are exhibited there uh, various um, gyros and, and globes uh, of the world as, as it was known probably before the time of Christopher Columbus mm -hmm. and before they even knew about the Americas uh, to see an early sort of sphere of the earth which has many or uh, well, even subcontinents that are missing mm -hmm. off, off the globe so that's a fascinating place one place I must get along to, I think, has had a revamp in, in, on the 
the Sedgwick uh, Museum, isn't it? The, the Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology. That's Museum, on Downing yes. Street. Yes, um, they're going to be having an explorer bingo night. Uh, so I, I believe there's lots of clues to solve, and you've got your bingo card to fill out. Um, so yes, they've got quite an, a sort of fun trail going on, um, and lots of really unusual exhibits to find. That's obviously something aimed more at the children. Yes. Um, uh, will there be uh, dinosaurs? Dinosaurs courtesy of the Sedgwick Museum. I always uh, say that because if you think of children and think of di- dinosaurs, it's the first thing that will excite them and spark their little imaginations as well. Well, it's very much aimed at families, this event. Um, and it was initiated really as a way of getting families into museums and allowing them to explore at a time where museums wouldn't normally be open to the public. Um, and it started really being museums switching off their lights and people being exp- being able to explore by torchlight. Um, and now it's grown and grown in popularity. We still have that torchlit element to it, but a lot of the museums add on extras. So not everywhere will be in the dark, but it is a good idea to bring your torch along because you will find some torchlit trails happening. I would say so. Either around the grounds, presumably some outdoors, presumably the, as long as the weather isn't too inclement. We've got lots of outdoor oh, activities okay. happening, actually. We have um, the Cambridge Guides um, are involved and they'll be doing torchlit tours um, of the streets of Cambridge. So that will be leading from Downing Street all the way to the Museum of Classical Archaeology. And when you arrive there, you will find a huge four metre cubed illuminated globe. Um, And that will be um, presenting images of the museum collections. But there's also an opportunity for you to have your photograph taken and for that to be displayed in in the globe as well. So that's quite fun. And we have a cycle powered cinema happening outside the, um, (laughs) the Polar Museum. And they'll be showing films of sustainable superheroes so these will be short films that have been made by local schools in partnership with the Polar Museum and also Illuminate who are also having their festival at the same time. Yes, big big Illuminate one which will be uh, lighting up many of Cambridge University buildings in fact along King's Parade. Yes, I saw King's College last night was lit up with a kind of a rainbow effect. It was beautiful. Fantastic, yes. Oh, So that's that's tied in at the same time as well. Also with a sustainable power by using a bicycle I'd imagine they'd all be taking turns like half an hour shift with somebody. I think it's going to be a team effort, absolutely. <laughs> but that's very commendable. In fact, one of the national radio stations last year stayed on air because somebody was pedalling uh, to keep a studio live to make all the, all the power needed for the mixing desk and the microphones and etc. Were, were, were done through uh, using this reusable or renewable energy <laughs> for using people's uh, limbs to, to power pedals. So this is fantastic. In fact, the uh, Cambridge Guides will be the Blue Badge Guides, presumably, that would be working to um, show around um, summer tourists. That's right. It's a combination of the the Blue Badge Guides um, and some of the other Cambridge Guides, um, and they kind of come under the banner of the Cambridge Guides, but they'll be telling you some of the more unknown and kind of quirky and curious stories about the streets that they're going to be following. So um, Maybe a few ghost stories. Well, we're not sure. I don't want to frighten the children too too much. Um, I think they're going for the fun element. (laughs) So mums and dads must come along, obviously, for uh, reasons of uh, responsibility and safety for the children themselves. Um, Wouldn't it be nice to see... uh, Will there be a little prize, do you think, for somebody who can... uh fill in the bingo card properly. Oh, I think that a lot of the museums will be handing out prizes of sorts and certainly I know that the the Cambridge Guides have got lots of glow sticks to hand out so to light your to light the the, the streets of Cambridge with so um, there'll be yeah there'll be bits and pieces floating (laughs) around I'm sure. So what time will the doors be opening uh, for most of these It all kicks off at 4.30pm and Mm -hmm. um, this year we're we're extending it for an extra hour so it runs until 8.30pm as well.
okay. uh, which is great. Um, and there'll also be catering opportunities. We've got Steak and Honor, the uh, gourmet burger people involved, the Cafe Mobile, ah. and some of the museums, the Fitzwilliam and Botanics. That's a good incentive in its own right. At least Absolutely. it's only me along. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I know I can get a cup of tea or a burger or something Definitely. but a nice one by the sound of it a very nice one it is Cambridge after, after all. all it's got to be very classy yes very good um, I guess you're not really going to realistically get round to all the venues are you I mean if you've got that four hour opportunity from 4.30 till 8.30 it's probably not a chance you're going to get up to Denny Farm Museum I and mean, what would you recommend people do in terms of uh, trying to do a circuit tour. I mean, it's going to be impossible to get to every venue. Well, we have handy explorer guides. In fact, I've brought one with me, Phil. Very good. Um, we have handy explorer guides. They can be picked up at any of the participating venues. We've got a big stall at the moment at Central Library, um, and they will be available on the night. And they give you lots of information about what's happening, so you can plot a course. Um, and there's a little passport at the back, so you can actually get a, a stamp in your in your guide. To, to collect how many museums you've visited. But there's 12 venues in total, so I think it's a big ask to try and get around. I think, uh, probably, but, yeah. given Cambridge traffic. But, um, it would be, but we're really encouraging families to try and visit more than one because there's such a, a, a broad range and a wealth um, that, that is offered by, by our local museums. And I think, um, you know, if you've, it's a great opportunity to visit somewhere you've never been to before. And have you managed to see some of the children's passports in past years? You've been doing this past sports scheme how many do you think uh, some of the kids have got up to in terms of uh, visits and stamps well it's our first year for the oh, past for that, for that so we're trialing something ah, new yeah. oh yes yeah. every year we try something new It'd be interesting to see uh, we can get at least uh, five or six visits in for some children it would be great yeah but that, that's a that's a great challenge to set our families who can get the most and the university botanic garden will be opening uh, its gates it'll only be via the uh, brookside gate this time that's right. which is the one facing on to trumpington road um, it's only the usual entrance is it because that will be bateman's street so you're obviously opening up another one of the entrances there that's right and uh, you've got plants masters of trickery you say in disguise and you can discover the deceptive powers of plants on a torchlit journey through the glasshouse range which is quite beautiful, actually, because if you I'd see imagine. the um, yes. glass houses from the outside in the dark, I mean, it's quite magical, lit up with torches. So that should be really good fun. It's um, at the best of times, obviously, it's lovely to visit uh, the University Botanic Garden. It's something I hadn't um, done for many years until about mm. three years ago, and I suddenly discovered this vast, peaceful place. Mm. Especially in the summer. It is. It's well such a, sort of a, an oasis, isn't it, in the city centre? And uh, we need to find out who will be the best museum explorer by going to the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology mm -hmm. on Downing Street. As you say, you get your bingo card and uh, then you find out uh, more in each gallery, which I suppose means you can tick off the clues as you go along into that yeah. card. Uh, you're looking to find a hungry Roman mouse in there. Uh, will be the first to find 500-year-old potatoes, which also <laughs> exist in the building too. Because they've been looking for them for ages. <laughs> you know, staff would wonder where they put them. Oh, they're probably <laughs> up in the attic or something like that. And over at uh, Denny Abbey, if you, if you are on the north side of the city, why not just head up the A10 then? Um, head towards Chittering, the small sort of little hamlet, uh, well before you get to um, is it the Lazy Otter pub, I believe, mm -hmm. which is uh, where the, the River Ouse and River Cam crosses under the A10. And you've got a pathway of sparkling light uh, leading the visitor towards the centuries-old abbey. That will look really nice, I think, again oh, at night. It'll be beautiful. And there'll be family activities there exploring the theme of light and dark. And there's a team room on site which will be open, especially for the evening too. That's, that's wonderful. I hope that uh, the event goes really well for you, Susan. 
Um, it's a free event. It's very generous, I think, of a lot of people to give up mm. their time um, and uh, open all these resources for the public. It's 4.30, as we say, from next Wednesday. That's the 19th of February. Uh, the Fitzwilliam Museum, of course, not to be forgotten. They're probably the biggest, and mm-hmm. arguably someone might say the best, especially the staff that work there. Uh, they'll be open as well. 5.30, they'll be beyond the tomb in ancient Egypt within uh, uh, the Fitzwilliam Museum from quarter to six till quarter to seven. You've got behind the scenes of the coins and medals. Um, the keeper of the coins and medals will be opening up his department, his her department. And at seven o'clock, beyond the to- tomb in ancient Greece as well, uh, you can join the outreach officer Anastasia uh, for a magical journey uh, telling session with a bit of story going, storytelling going on all about uh, ancient Greece. Yes, I believe Sounds... they were, might be having some visitors from beyond the tomb as well. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> if you I expect some the... surprises. <laughs> I hope this children aren't scared too much but mummies oh, no, no, no. creeping up out of it'll all be done in a very yes, <laughs> a very like, non-threatening yeah. way so do bring your children along to that i'll give you some more information uh well i'll repeat the information in a little while uh, but you can get some information from um uh well actually would you like to give out uh, any any details for the contacts um Susan, that you might have um, that well, all the um, some there's some great information about the um, the event itself on the University of Cambridge Museums um, website. So if you go to the Cambridge University website, click on museums and galleries, and then you'll find all the information there. And you can keep an eye on uh, Twilight updates and other news on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The hashtag is CamTwilight. That's right. To get some more information. Uh, you can put Twilight at the museum's Cambridge into your search engine to find the cam.ac.uk main university website. And that should, in fact, through your search engine, take you to the relevant page. Absolutely. Susan Miller, thank you very much for coming in and spending some time with us today. <laughs> From 10 to 1. Mid mornings with Mandy Morton. delighted to bring you uh, my first guest of the afternoon. Now, Jane Asher is appearing in Moon Tiger, uh, the uh, original book uh, by Penelope Lively, and she's on at the Cambridge Arts Theatre this week. Uh, And I went along to meet Jane in her dressing room last night, just before the show went up. Jane, uh, to start with, so many people actually cite Moon Tiger as being one of their favourite books of all time. Had you read it before you were offered this part? I'm ashamed and embarrassed to say that I hadn't. I'd heard of it, like I think most people of my sort of generation, terribly well-known title, but I hadn't ever read it. I did, of course, once I'd read... I read the adaptation first, and then I read the novel, and, I mean, she just writes so beautifully. I, I just regret deeply I've been all these years without having read it, because it's a gem. And you're right, so many people have said to me, oh, that's my favourite book, which is quite a weight on one when you're going about to do it on stage. Also, um, the other thing about it is that Penelope Lively herself, um, I was able to speak to her uh, just at the back end of Christmas, um, and she actually mentioned that one of the most exciting things for her that was happening in 2014 was the staging of uh, Moon Tiger. Um, And she was so excited about it. Uh, You must know, has she seen it? She has. She came first to a reading that we did of it, just to see if it would work at all in principle, because I think we all felt very unsure, being, as she describes it, this kaleidoscopic view of this woman's life, so it goes to and fro in time and so on, 
very complex concept. None of us are quite sure, is this going to work as a, as a theatre piece? So we did a reading of it, and she came to that, which was the first time I met her. So that was scary enough. <laughs> but we all agreed, yes, it works wonderfully, if it can be staged in the right way, which at that point nobody quite had much idea of <laughs> what that would be. But she thought that was terrific. And then, yes, she came to our first night in Bath, and absolutely loved it and I feel that is the stamp of approval if the author this brilliant wonderful woman is happy with it and likes it then that's good enough for me I'm just thrilled so many authors works are taken and by the time they actually get to the stage or indeed TV I mean whichever medium it, it appears in uh, it's almost unrecognizable I think what's lovely about this uh, particular dramatization of her work is that it's incredibly recognizable and a lot of her words a lot of the the, the dialogue is used to perfection it is extraordinary isn't it how much we've been able to use of it and I agree it seems to sum up the feelings of the book so beautifully obviously you, you can't include I mean a fraction of it because it's a it's a fairly long book and you can't put all that on stage but I think we have enough of the important elements and the feeling of her wonderful writing to make it work and I think the brilliant staging and I can say that quite objectively because it's not to do with me the way it was finally presented is so clever because it does become a piece that works in its own right you don't just feel I'm sitting here listening to the book and I might as well have gone home and read it. It has become something special and different, but equally reflecting the book. It deals with a woman who is at the very end of her life. In fact, that's sort of the dying moments, really, as far as she's concerned. Um, Claudia, the character, how do you relate to her? She's much older than you, for a start. Um, and also, I mean, her life is, has been a very, very different life. But getting inside Claudia as a character, because she's a very complex woman, and I know you are too. <laughs> well, aren't we all? <laughs> We're all yes. complex. She's only about 10 years old. Yes, 10 years older than I am. And very much not dying of old age, I think. She is dying of cancer. Now, this makes it sound terribly gloomy. I hate describing this play to people because it sounds like, oh, dear, oh, dear. In fact, funny enough, somebody who was sitting in the audience the other night said to me that a man behind him said, oh, God, there's a drip, you know, because we have a hospital bed on stage. Thank goodness they weren't talking about anybody on stage. <laughs> no, anyway. no, it was none of the people. But I can assure everybody that the drip disappears, and it, it's actually quite a funny play, and, and I think, of course, wonderfully listenable to and not depressing at all. But she is a woman who, yes, we see at the very beginning is dying of cancer and looking back over her life. Now, that's a good question, how do I relate to her? because she could appear to be very dislikable. In fact, she appears on a website that I came across called Hard to Like Heroines, which is quite interesting. I am extremely fond of her. I feel I know Claudia pretty well. I agree with a lot of her views on things. I hope I'm slightly more tactful, perhaps, in the way that I deal with people. She's wonderfully acerbic and abrasive and appears to be rather grudging about her own daughter, in fact, almost to dislike her. But I think you discover throughout the play, through the duration of the play, for one thing, why she is like this about her daughter, slightly ambivalent about her, and also the fact, she, of course, she does love her daughter very much and is very warm towards her, really. But there's a big event that happened in her life in the Second World War, which has affected her so deeply that it has skewed the relationship with her daughter. And it's rather sad that you know that the two of them have secrets that the other one will probably never know, although 
there is a way, I think, maybe without giving away the plot that the daughter may discover later what her mother went through. But you, I think it explains a lot about Claudia's character. But her views on things, I concur with so much. I love saying some of the speeches because the obvious ones about being desperately anti-war, uh, being very atheistic, uh, very tough about the way people's lives are manipulated by power, powerful people and so on. I just love doing some of those speeches because I agree with them so much. She's described as being a historian, but I mean, that, that really is a very light way of describing this particular lady. There's a lot of inner conflict within her that actually we are privy to because this is an open discussion which she throws out at the audience. And it, it is one of those things you walk away and you're thinking about it, I would imagine, days later. I saw it last night. It's been living with me all day some of those comments and like you I can identify with an awful lot of what was happening but she was very forward thinking because a lot of the things that she talks about and the periods that she talks about um, women just weren't on the scene they weren't as dominant as that you didn't get too many people that went into war zones and started reporting on bodies lying in the desert um, she was very forward thinking right from the start Yes, of course, Penelope was writing it in 1987, so she is writing it with, of course, the, the hindsight of having lived through a time where things had changed dramatically. But you're right, and it's interesting that there is a very strong love element in the play, and that the guy who is involved in this assumes that he will have to totally look after and pay for the love of his life, this woman, you know, and, and he sort of rather condescendingly says, you know, that, oh, well, you can write your little book sort of thing, you know, and she accepts it. Nowadays, I think we would be very different about that. But Claudia does say, looking back, if feminism had been around then, I would have taken it up, I suppose. It would have needed me, which I love the way she says that. You can sort of see Penelope saying that. I, I must say, Penelope often says, people say to her, is Claudia based on you? And she always says, no, 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 absolutely. Oh, if, absolutely not. If only I was as feisty as Claudia. Well, I can tell you, you know, having met her a few times, there's a lot of Claudia in her. She, she herself is quite daunting. She's like one of those wonderful teachers that you're a bit frightened of, but because you admire them so much and you want to please them. And she's a little bit like that. But she claims she's not Claudia, but I think there are a lot of, uh, lot of elements in common. You always know when you're sitting with an older woman, um, when wisdom begins to ooze out and you suddenly find yourself almost sitting at her feet. I feel exactly the same way about her in, in that respect. Um, there's nothing sort of chronological about this play, there's nothing chronological about the book, but we visit all those important moments um, within her life. Was that hard to learn? Because, I mean, you, you've got to have somewhere to, to go, like, if you're learning a song, you know what it's going to be like at the end, therefore you try and get yourself into that position. That's a very good question, because, yes, of course, normally when you're doing a play, we all talk a lot in a rather pretentious way about the journey, of course, and that you know, you know where you're going to end up, so that the arc of the story is very important. Well, as you say, with this, when we were rehearsing it, very often I would say, well... Has this, have we already had the bit that happens before this or is that going to come afterwards? Because it does go to and fro. But that's, uh, I love that about the play and the book. She writes a lot about memory and she's quite right that it isn't sequential or chronological. When you look back in your life, things do go out of order and they appear to happen all at once and things, and you sometimes remember something of having happened before this or after this and there isn't any sort of logic to it and that's the way she tries to write the book and the way that we present the play. But I think what's very clever about the way we do it is that you're, you're never lost. You do know exactly where you are because of various technical tricks. You know where you are all the time. And 
having said that, I still think it's quite good to come and see it more than once, but I would, wouldn't I? Because you do, I think, gain more each time you see it. But you never feel, oh, I haven't a clue how old she is or where she is. Or And considering I play her, nobody must laugh at this, from the age of six to 77, <laughs> which is Not a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> more of a stretch backwards than forwards, I have to good say. Good bit in the middle, though. <laughs> yes, a good bit in the middle. Um, so, the, yes, I, I have to sort of keep tabs on roughly where I am and where I'm going. But it's, uh, yeah, not easy, but, but wonderful. I mean, who wouldn't love a part like this? It's fantastic. What about learning lines? I mean, I imagined you having seen the play last night, um, actually spending most of Christmas at your kitchen sink, just talking to yourself. I mean, is that the reality? Pretty much is in this case. I used to never want to learn things before I started rehearsing. I, for years, I always said, I don't want to, I want to wait, so it's very malleable, I learn it as I'm rehearsing. And it was doing, I think it was Bedroom Fast with Peter Hall a few years ago, and he said, I'd like everybody to come to rehearsal having learnt it. And I thought, oh dear, oh dear, I don't like doing that. But I did, as I was told, of course. And it was a revelation. <laughs> it was just wonderful. It didn't mean I was stuck in a particular way of having learned it at all. It just freed me up so much earlier. It just meant you got to a stage of, of rehearsals much, much earlier than you would have if you hadn't learned it. So since then, the, the several plays I've done since then, I have always maybe not learned it totally, but got a pretty good idea of it. And this one, yes, it was yeah. so daunting when I first saw the <laughs> script. I knew I would have to start learning it pretty early. So Simon Reed, who is the brilliant adapter who's done this this play version, he he and I were emailing constantly with little changes, ideas of different and, and he did say, Look, I promise you about three or four weeks before rehearsal start, we'll do a final version, that'll be it. Of course it wasn't, we did change <laughs> things later, but I more or less had the final, and you're quite right, we had a two weeks rehearsal before Christmas, then a break of a week over Christmas, where I was more or less permanently being Claudia around the house, just trying to, <laughs> trying to remember it. But I have to say, it's dangerous to say this because one can always dry even now, but being so beautifully, logically written, it was easier than many things I've had to learn and it's just a joy to say her words so that it wasn't quite as terrifying as I thought it might be. Everybody's going to want to know what a moon tiger is that haven't read the book, so I, I, I really would ask you to tell us what it is. Yes, because it sounds very romantic, doesn't it? As if it's something to do with meeting on a moonlit light. Well, not at all. It's a very practical object. It is a mosquito repellent, one of those coily things, bright green coils, concentric coils that you light the end of and it smokes away all night. And as Claudia puts it, it drops away into, into lengths of grey ash. So I suppose that's very symbolic, that as it burns away, it leaves an ashy pattern of what it was, if you like, a sort of dead pattern of the smoking thing. And that moon tiger repellent was in the room where she had this wonderful time with this young man, and which is the core of her life, she describes it. I was going to say, it's a beautiful way to describe Claudia, the, the description that you've just given of the moon tiger. Brilliant. Um, you said she wasn't very likeable, um, although you do grow in a very strange way, particularly if you're on her side throughout, uh, to do that. That's very refreshing because the point is whatever, uh, however a play begins, um, once you get involved with the characters, uh, you make up your own mind about it. But it is very refreshing to have somebody standing up for, the, for what they believe in, just for a change. And because she's dying, she sure doesn't care. She just doesn't care. She's putting it straight in her own mind, and that is being shared with the audience. That is refreshing. Yes, and I think she's always been a woman who enjoys an argument, which I <laughs> I 
again, I quite agree with, you know, it can be quite fun arguing the opposite of what you believe, just for the hell of it, just to sort of have a lovely to and fro with somebody. Some people can't bear it, you know, they can't bear any sort of confrontation. But Claudia, I think, yes, loves a bit of a go at people and things. And uh, I don't dislike her at all, but I think she can appear exactly as you say, a little dislikable at first because she doesn't suffer fools gladly. And that can be, of course, a, a bit of a cruel trait. But basically, she's a very good person. And I, I like her enormously. And hopefully, like you, most people will feel by the end of the play, this is a very good person trying to do the right thing, trying to be honest, trying to look back over her life and try to work out what on earth it's all about. And it is the honesty that comes through because there's nothing straightforward in any of her relationships with, with her own family, as you've mentioned, with her daughter, uh, with her lovers. There is nothing straightforward. But that actually is true to life. And, and you, you walk away from the theatre thinking, well, yeah, that's right. Of course it is. And there's a baby that figures in the story which I think has had a huge effect on her. So having appeared to be perhaps a not a very motherly person during the first half of the play... You realise, of course, that it, it's been the most important thing in her life. The motherhood that didn't go right has, has really affected her deeply. So I think we get to understand her. We're all trying to muddle through, aren't we? And Claudia is, Claudia is doing her best in a, in a rather wonderfully brittle way to, to work it all out. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. I know we've talked a few times on the telephone, but it's great to meet you face to face. And I hope this does very well indeed. And fingers crossed, hopefully, for the West End. Well, I know they're hoping it will because it has, yes, it does seem to have done very well so far. And I, I know he's getting the national critics in when we're in Kingston. So if they like it, who knows? If the right theatre was available, I think it could work in a nice, smallish theatre. Um, yeah, hopefully, that would be good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Merlin Cathari. And I've been joined today by uh, two girls from Being Inspired. I've got Amira and I've also got Aya with me. Good afternoon, good morning, afternoon. Good morning, girls. How are you? Good morning, Merlin. Thank you for coming in today. We're glad to be here. Thank you. So um, let's go with um, what is Being Inspired all about to start with? Okay, um, Be Inspired is a charity um, aimed at um, 16 to 25-year-olds. Um, it's a volunteer charity, so it's trying to get people volunteering so then they get more skilled and be able to give more to their communities. Okay, yeah. and um, you're running an event, aren't you? You're running... Oh, he's throwing everything on the floor. You're running an event tomorrow that's at the Grafton Centre. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Okay, um, we're running a campaign called Love Is, and tomorrow we'll be giving out um, free sweets, um, roses, and free henna tattoos, and also you can get your own professional photo taken. And this is to generate discussion about um, the first warning signs of um, an unhealthy relationship. So what, what does it mean for you to have an unhealthy relationship so you will be able to identify it if you ever be in a situation where you need to? OK, I suppose that's something that's quite, quite key at the moment. We're coming up to Valentine's Day and all the rest of it. So I suppose a part of it is collecting information to be able to offer support to people in the area as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so if people are... This might be a question nobody yet to answer. If people are experiencing problems, um, is there anywhere particularly they can go to that you, you can signpost them to? Or is this an event purely to kind of identify where they're at? Um, no, we're, we're signposting to Centre 33 and to Relate, uh, which is a charity which is um, quite quite un unknown in Cambridge, actually. And because they, they offer support. mediation, don't they? Is that correct? Mediation service? Yeah, that's correct. All right, OK. Um, so... Let's have a look. What is an unhealthy relationship then? Let's have a look. You've got some scenarios for us, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. Okay, do you want to give me the first one? 
well, the first one is um, somebody wanting to check their partner's texts and social media posts all the time and constantly. So. All right. Well, I'd say that's probably a natural thing in a relationship. Is that something that's is is considered normal, or is that a sign I should be watching out for? Well, I mean, uh, with uh, relationships now nowadays, social media and personal media is so um, like it's it, there's. It's everywhere, really, um, and um, it's hard not to sort because there's obviously public personal media and there's private personal media. So with things like Twitter feed and Facebook, like Facebook posts and things, obviously um, that's something that you your partner would probably want to check because they're, you know, probably on your page all the time. Um, however, when it comes to like texts and personal Facebook uh, messages to other people um, it's it's your own personal media so it's for you but obviously it depends on the couple I mean what the, what the couple are comfortable with so um, it's personal taste in other yeah. words it's about your control you're a relationship together so you've got to make a decision together okay have you got another one for me um somebody wanting to hold their partner's hand in public okay well i'd find that annoying but i'm pretty sure that's not a, not 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 an unhealthy sign is that correct uh well i mean it can get unhealthy because obviously um there's there's the the there's a fine line between um being overly affectionate and being possessive because obviously uh when somebody is is uh, overly affe affectionate to you might not feel comfortable so again it depends on the couple so obviously if um, somebody is uh, always wanting to hold your hand you should have that in a sort of a private conversation if you don't like PDA um, then that should obviously be talked about because communication is key in a relationship and you have to keep that open and you have to keep the communication going okay um, so. so pda sorry public to face to face public displays <laughs> of affection is that that correct though yeah i'm not a big one on that one okay and um you've got one more haven't you that's that's there yeah come on then what's the what's the next one for me uh somebody getting jealous when they see their partner speaking to somebody else at a party now i've had this in personal experience and I find that's normally a sign that a relationship isn't going down a positive route exactly um, I mean I can understand people getting jealous in, in various ways but I mean, what, what, what is the what is the take on that one well I mean jealousy jealousy can in a relationship can be positive or it can be negative because jealousy you know it, it can spark that kind of um, desire towards each other and you know the 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 fact that you want to protect your partner however it can get very unhealthy um, because obviously um, for example the scenario if you're at a party and you're just talking to somebody everybody has friends everybody has acquaintances and people they know um, so obviously you have to respect your partner but if you don't feel comfortable you shouldn't make a big scene about it and sort of be so um, loud and and it can get you know um, to the point where it is negative because the partner doesn't feel safe around oh, their own partner one. so then obviously that that can spiral down and cause destruction in a relationship that's that's a really interesting interesting thought i suppose because c control and and all that stuff and trust kind of forms the base of relationship so if there's nothing there then there's you're not in a safe one are you you're not in a healthy one which exactly. is an important one and there was one that caught my eye which is somebody telling their partner that they're putting on weight yeah is, is that something that's quite common in relationships? I mean... Um, well, I mean, um, people are more aware of the fact that it is... Um, it can be offensive 
now, but some partners obviously, you know, um, there's also, there needs to be um, an understanding of when your partner is putting on a little bit of weight, which they might be comfortable with, but then when it gets to the point where it is unhealthy for them. So it's identifying the boundaries. Yeah, and you're worried for them, but you have to approach it in a very sensitive manner because obviously you can't, you can't sort of put them down or belittle them um, and make them feel like they're not worthy of your love or their, even their own love. So um, you need to do it in a very sensitive way and a private matter. And it needs to be talked about where you're listening to their views as well as your own. So Okay, all right. So your event you've got coming up, let's, let's, let's plug this one for you. When is it and how can people get involved? Um, it's tomorrow at the Grafton Centre between 11 and 3.30pm. Um, people just need to come down just in front of the new look and we'll be situated there and hopefully we'll be able to attend to you. We'll have a lot of things going on, free henna, free balloons, you can decorate and draw on your own balloons, um, you have a free professional photo taken and you can... Our MP will be coming down too, so Julian Huppert will be there. Oh, Julian will be there. Brilliant, fantastic. Well, I, I plan to be coming along tomorrow to give you guys some support, and I'm hoping that uh, my listeners here at 105 Breakfast will also be giving you the support you need. Thank you so much for coming in today, ladies. Sorry it's been short and sweet, but thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for having us. You're, you're very <laughs> welcome. From 10 till 1. Mid-mornings with Linda Ness. something to do with the children this half term. Um, A good option could be to visit the Denny Farm Museum in Waterbeach. Now the museum is holding two events during the half term week and uh, hopefully we should have Chris Lukers, the museum's education officer, on the telephone. Chris, are you able to hear us? Yes, I am. Good morning. Excellent. Good morning, Chris. Now, would you like to tell us a little bit about the Fenland Museum? What's there to see and do? The Fenland Museum, certainly. Um, I mean, the first thing is, it's not just a farmland museum. We like to describe ourselves as a museum of Cambridgeshire, a museum of Fenland life, and a museum of um, social history as well. So while there are plenty of uh, farmland displays and uh, anyone who's interested in the development of farming since the agricultural revolution will find plenty to interest them, there's always also things like um, a Victorian cottage which has been uh, lovingly restored and and, uh, people are fascinated to look around that. Oh, yeah. We've got an old um, village shop as well from the same sort of uh, era various displays of Fenland craft, such as the dairy and uh, willow workers' uh, workshop and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Plus, of course, the uh, fantastic 12th century Denny Abbey, which is really a wonderful landmark, and you can go inside and explore it, and there really is plenty to, to see and do there. Brilliant. It sounds really excellent. I'm, I haven't actually been there myself, and I must pop down and have a look. Certainly must. I must. And I believe that there are two events during half-term that are particularly aimed at children. What are these? Yes, I mean, they're aimed at families, and uh, obviously we're aware that if children are happy, the families are happy. Yeah, also. absolutely. So on the Wednesday, we're joining up with the, um, the University of Cambridge Museums to do the Twilight at the Museum session. And um, at Denny Abbey, it goes from 4.30 until 8.30, and you'll be able to see the, uh, the whole site in a completely new light. The Abbey's going to be floodlit, mm-hmm. and it does look absolutely amazing uh, when it's floodlit, really spectacular certainly as you know daylight fades and, and, and night goes on it, it just stands out wonderfully mm. and what we'll be able to do there is there is a trail to take you around the museum and there's also a silhouette making activity so children can come and be photographed 
and then um, we'll print out their photographs. They can cut them out and make a, an authentic Victorian silhouette, which they can frame and take away with them as a wonderful souvenir. Oh, fantastic. That sounds absolutely brilliant. And I see that the Twilight at the Museum event also involves the telling of the Denny ghost story. That sounds really exciting. What age range of the children are you aiming at? It's not too scary, is it? It's not too scary, no. I mean, our teller is, is very good at uh, gauging the age of the children and the likely reaction as well. So <laughs> it's, it's not so much a ghost story. It's more of a sort of Funland mystery story. So oh. I, I'm sure it's suitable for anybody. Oh, that sounds really, really good. And children love that kind of thing as well, don't they? They That's do. Great. They absolutely do. And we've, we've done one like that in the past, and it's gone down very well. Yes, I can imagine. And I, I see that you've also got some uh, great things coming up, like, you know, teachers' maypole workshops and May Days and Easter celebrations and a 1940s event as well. You've got lots of stuff going on down there, presumably all the time, yeah? Yes, we're, we're actually in our closed period at the moment. We're just opening those two days over half term. But from the beginning of April through to the end of October, that's our open period. We're open every day. And um, particularly of interest to, to families, every Wednesday and Thursday afternoon during the holidays and half terms, we have uh, drop-in sessions where... Uh, families can come and do make-and-take activities, and, and uh, there's very often a trail going on as well. Mm-hmm. So um, children absolutely adore that, and it's a lovely wide-open site, and there's plenty of opportunities for picnics, and if the weather gets a bit better, of course. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, it's a sort of place you can spend a whole day. And I'd like to emphasise how close it is to Cambridge as well. It's, it's really only about eight miles away, just north of Water Beach, on the number nine bus route. So um, no problems getting there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, sounds, it sounds fantastic, actually. Um, and how much does it will, it will it cost to take the children? It's always always a, an issue, of course, with families. Of course, it is. I mean, to, to start with our half term events, the Wednesday session is completely free, so you can't uh, balk at that. Gosh. But the Thursday session is a, a normal um, children's activity uh, pricing, so that's adults five pounds, concessions four pounds, and children three pounds fifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also get a family ticket for thirteen pounds, and we do season tickets. That's a real bargain. Uh, with a season ticket, a family season ticket is £30, and that enables you to come as many times as you like throughout uh, the season until the end of October. Mm-hmm. That's great. So if you really like the place, then that's definitely the way to go. That, that, that It all sounds wonderful. And for those people wanting more information and, and you know, to book in advance and stuff like that, how, how would they get in touch with you? How would they find you? Yeah, absolutely no need to book in advance. Just turn up. There's uh, plenty of room for everybody. Uh, if they want to get in touch with me, the, uh, we have got a website, which is demifarmlandmuseum, one word, dot org, dot uk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can easily Google that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can also ring us. Uh, the number is Cambridge 860988 mm-hmm. uh, if they want further information. Excellent. Chris, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning um, and taking time out to do that. That all sounds great. And I know that, especially with younger children, that when my daughter was younger, you're always hunting for things to do at half terms. And that sounds like a great option, actually. It sounds fabulous. That's Brilliant. great. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Chris Lukers telling us about the two events at the Denny Farmland Museum at Water Beach. Twilight at the museum, which is on Wednesday the 19th of February, and the Children's Art and Craft Afternoon, which is on Thursday the 20th of February. And as he said, you know, for more details, look at the website, dennyfarmlandmuseum.org.uk. From 10 till 1. Mid-mornings with Linda Ness. 
pleased to welcome Carrie Rawlings from that rock choir. So if you like singing and you're maybe thinking about starting a new hobby, I think you'd really enjoy hearing about how this energetic and fun choir come together. So welcome to Cambridge 105, Carrie. Hello, welcome. Hi. That's nice to be here. Yeah, good. So tell us about the rock choir, Carrie. It's not just a local organisation, is it? No, no, no. Um, I'm one of over 50 leaders all over the UK. Um, we stretch right down from the bottom of England to the top. There's about 15,000 people singing every week with rock choir. So yeah, we're not alone. <laughs> no, and you're the leader of the Cambridge Rock Choir. And you do, do you do Huntingdon as well? Yep, I do Huntingdon and St Neot. So I'm kind of in this pocket of Cambridgeshire. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you're a very, very busy. In fact, I know you're a very busy lady because we'd, uh, we've had, we've been waiting ages to get you in here. We can, <laughs> Because you've been very busy doing panto and stuff. Tell us a bit about yourself then, Carrie. Well, I actually was born in Cambridge, in Mill Road Hospital, which used to be. Um, grew up here and then sort of lived in St Neots with my mum and dad, went to school in St Neots, ended up working back in Cambridge as a teenager. Uh, and then I went off to university and studied performing arts and music and then went to drama school in London. So it's always been in my bones, really. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked, started working for Rock Choir in around 2011. Okay. And they said to me, where would you like to be based? And obviously I thought the best place to be would be back home where I began my musical life, really. Yeah. So I opened Cambridge St. Neots and Huntingdon Rock Choir in September of 2011. And we're oh. just entering our third year now. Brilliant. And how hard is it to get in? Oh, it's easy to get in. Uh, we don't audition. There's no audition at all. You don't? You don't have to read music. Yeah. Um, so really, you come along for one week on a free taster to see what you think. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no judgment of me to the, to the singer, as it were. It's more about you coming along and seeing how you feel amongst the choir and whether it's the choir for you. OK, so if there's no auditions, how do you... Oh, I know what you're going to say. Know, how do you deal with people like me who would be droning along out of tune? Well, droning is not a word I would ever use. <laughs> I sort of have the impression that most people can sing, but they've just never really honed that skill. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So although you may only sing in the car or in the shower, when you come together and sing as a group, it suddenly becomes easier to hear yourself. And then I'll help you work on your listening skills, basically, to try and make sure that you're in pitch with everyone else. So if people, you know, start at the beginning less confident and very quietly singing and not sure how they sound, then hopefully by the end of an hour and a half, they're feeling much more confident in what they do. And there's safety in numbers, so people tend to just end up coming together and singing in tune, and there's no, there's no awkwardness then. They feel really liberated. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine it would be a great fun thing. What kind of singing do you do? What kind of music do you do? Oh, everything. So the main repertoire is kind of rock, pop, Motown. Not heavy rock, don't get me wrong. We're more kind of like the darkness. Um, but this time alone, we've been doing Ollie Murs, so Dance With Me Tonight. We've then just headed to Adele, and we're doing a slowy, Someone Like You. Mm -hmm. And we're about to start Mr Blue Sky by the Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, fantastic. So it's a real mix of kind of fast, slow, upbeat, you know, older songs, new songs, just trying to keep it different all the time, really. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Okay, let's let's break for a second because we we've got a couple of, of tracks here from you, and this is somebody to love. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought it'd be good it. for today. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Valentine's Day. Let's see, and you know, lots of slush, lots of slush, guys. Let's <laughs> let's hear it. Somebody, somebody, and anybody find me. 
And that is the Rock Choir. And we are fortunate today in having Carrie Rawlings from the Rock Choir in the studio with us. How many people are in the Cambridge Rock Choir, Carrie? I think I see about 200 people a week. I, I see some on Monday, some on Tuesday. So, yeah, This a is lot. not some small kind of 20-person 20, 20 choir then. This is massive. It is massive, yeah. I mean, it just... I think it's grown because of people's love of the volume and the sound that we create as, yeah. a, as a room and it gives people a lot more confidence to sing in a big number uh-huh. and for these kind of songs it really works because it's just there's such a party atmosphere then gosh it really is quite a big successful thing this rock wire business actually isn't it well yeah, it's been doing well but again really. it's just it's spiraled from its own people's own enjoyment you know people yeah. telling their friends and bringing them along bringing them really. along yeah. yeah that's all and, and what, what do your members get out of being in the choir do you think Well, that's really interesting. We've been talking about this recently, a few of us, saying it's not only the kind of musicianship that they're hopefully getting better at, because I'm a bit of a taskmaster in terms of the technique and the way that they're growing as singers, but there's a massive social side. So although they come for an hour and a half, they're all on Facebook groups or Twitter groups, or they have lunch clubs or weekend meetups. And they go afterwards as well, I imagine. Yeah, some of them go to the pub after. Um, You know, some of their kids go to school together. So it's a real community feeling. And when we do things where we perform and things like that, then they're travelling together all day and hanging out. So it's really, it's become really social. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people feel that they're they're their friends for life, you know, within the group. Brilliant. So it's lovely. And what's a typical rehearsal like then? How do you, you start doing scales or? (laughs) A little bit. So they'll come in. um, It's always an hour and a half long people always come in and say hi there's everyone you know finds their seat we sit in different vocal parts trying to mix the room into low middle and high so and if you're not sure about that then I would help advise at the beginning then we'll always do a bit of a warm-up shake loose the day get rid of what we've just been doing and focus ourselves into what we're about to do a bit of a warm-up vocally physically then we'll start learning a song we may be running some old songs um, we might be dancing there is a little bit of movement involved <laughs> in some of the rock choir songs or well, some dancing going on this morning to, to, to our uh, 
about our yeah. radio station in the park. Oh, good. Oh, absolutely. Anyway. You just you never know what's happening. <laughs> no, well, that, there's some rock choir people out there right now then, boogieing away. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. <laughs> and what kind of performances do you take part in, your, actually, your actual performances? Um, there's a real mix. So we try and do stuff locally for lots of charitable events. Um, at the moment, though, we're heading towards a performance at Wembley Stadium where we're going to go and perform for the Saracens wow. and Harlequins rugby match. Whoa. So we're going to sing on the pitch at the start of the match. Um, but then next term, we're going to be performing locally at the Cambridge Corn Exchange. Uh-huh. So it's a real mix. We've just done all the Christmas lights and we did a lovely carol service at St John's Church in town. Mm. So we just try and do stuff that people can come and see us in locally and then stuff that the members can sort of, you know, add to their bucket list, as it were. We've sung at Wembley and things like that. Which <laughs> I they can also imagine love. they'll be queuing up to do that gig, actually. Yeah, it should be good. We're hopefully taking from different choirs about 2,000 people to sing in the pitch wow. before the game begins. Wow. So that's going to be really special. Oh, that really will. And what would you say to somebody who's who's listening today and thinking, mm, yeah, quite fancy, a bit shy about going along? Well, I would say if you're really worried, then do just bring someone with you. Um, but m- most weeks there's always someone new there. Um, so just book in for a taster at rockquire.com and come in because you, you don't know until you've tried it basically, yeah. I would say. And it's more about getting in the room. That's probably half the battle, just deciding to come. The first time. Yeah. yeah, getting through the room. But we'll be really welcoming. There's always someone on the door. I have a team leader in every choir that will look after you and introduce you to me. We'll sit you down. We'll find you some people to chat to. And then you'll just get singing. Um, you only need one piece of paper, nothing else, no music, no no previous experience. And hopefully it should be a fun. We do have a lot of laughs, sometimes too many. And I do have to, you know, rein them back. <laughs> we get a bit excited. <laughs> that sounds absolutely brilliant. So it's rockchoir.com. That's yeah. the website that people should be looking at, is it? Yes, please. That's where you can book in for a free taster. Any of my choirs, I run five a week. So uh-huh. Brilliant. That's excellent. Thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you for Harry. having me. And we're going to be going out with another one of your tunes, Anytime You Need a Friend. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. All About the City. Cambridge 105.